You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Help us to think clearly and to think rightly about the things which are in your word, and we pray that our time here together might be blessed by you to the end that we would be encouraged and equipped in your word, and that you, O God, would give us grace to obey you unto your own glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the world, or for the life of the world, is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, having read those words, I would imagine that in most of your heads, you are asking more questions than you got answers out of that, right? It's kind of a perplexing text of sorts to try and sort out and to get an understanding of. It presents a bunch of different interpretive questions that we want to address today. And we kind of talked a little bit about it last week and just introduced it as it were. The words have sort of a creepy feeling to them. And I don't mean that in an irreverent sense. It's just there seems to be an intentional uh, rawness in the way that Jesus speaks here. Words that sort of have a cannibalistic flavor to them or pardon the pun, but cannibalistic sense to them. These are not ways in which we are alike to think, or these are not words that we like to hear. They're a bit a bit harsh, and I think intended by Jesus to speak of something in a very harsh and raw way. Most of you sitting here probably have a lot of questions about the text, and probably many of you are saying to yourself, I'm glad I'm not the one up front there having to explain this to everybody that's here today. And I can sympathize with that sentiment as well. Actually, when you take it just in a straightforward, normal sense and ask yourself, how would the Jews have understood what Jesus was saying, and how did Jesus intend to be understood, then the text kind of clears itself up a little bit. Today we want to address this from the, from the perspective of its connection with the Roman Catholic doctrine of mass or communion. And I, we just kind of touched on this last week. We're going to develop it a little bit more today. In fact, this whole message is really going to be an introduction of dealing with just that issue of the Roman Catholic Mass. We're going to kind of introduce the whole passage, but ask ourselves, does this in any way connect with what Roman Catholics practice when they practice communion? And I'm going to use probably today for our purposes the terms communion, Eucharist, or Mass all synonymously. And I understand for those of you who are a little bit more keyed into the theological issues that there are distinctions in those three words. But today, for our purposes here today, we're going to speak of basically communion, Mass, and the Eucharist and the Roman Catholic perspective on those things. 
There's a lot of interpretive issues that are raised by the passage that we just read. Is it a metaphor? Is it symbolic? Is it a sign that points to something? How are we to understand these words? What does it mean to eat the flesh of Jesus? What does it mean to drink his blood? Do we in any way take this literally? Is it in some way connected to the Roman Catholic uh, practice of Mass? And for some of you, you're wondering, I don't even know what the Roman Catholic practice of Mass is, and so I'm content for you just to skip it all together because I don't know and I don't care. Well, by the end of today, you're going to have some sort of an understanding of what Roman Catholics believe when they practice communion or observe communion and what they think happens. And you're going to have an understanding of why I don't think in any way John 6 has anything to do with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church on the subject of Mass. So you might ask, why even address this issue of the Mass and its connection with John 6? A few different reasons. One, because some of you have a background in Roman Catholicism. Some of you have come out of Roman Catholicism and now you attend this church or you got saved and now you attend uh, attended another church and then this church. Some of you have friends or family or brothers and sisters or co-workers or bosses or people that you know or neighbors who are Roman Catholic and you have discussions about these issues with them. Some of you, of course, every time you show up with your family are reminded that you're the black sheep of the family and you have left the mother church. And so there is no hope for you because you're no longer Catholic and you have left that and you don't practice this anymore. Some of you maybe have, have experienced some Roman Catholic theology and practice and you're kind of wondering what is the difference between Protestants and Catholics on this issue. So that's one reason why we're going to address it. The second reason is because there is a major push in our day toward ecumenicalism or ecumenism to get Protestants and Catholics to sort of lay aside their differences and cooperate for spiritual ends or spiritual goals. If we could just get Protestants and Catholics to say, okay, we disagree on the interpretation of John 6, we disagree on the Lord's Supper, maybe some things about baptism and and grace in the Bible and which books belong, but if we could just ignore all of those minor differences, we could all work together toward big spiritual goals, like getting a Mormon in the White House, or getting a Mormon elected to the legislature, or whatever, ending abortion, or whatever our goal might be. As you're going to see, I think, today, you're going to get a glimpse, the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism are not minor things that we can gloss over. They're major issues, and you're going to get a glimpse of that just in their view of communion. And the third reason why we're covering this is because it comes up in John 6, and we want to deal with this issue of whether John 6 really has anything to do with the Roman Catholic Mass or not. So what is the Roman Catholic Mass, and what is this doctrine? I'm going to describe it to you, and as I do this, I want you to understand if you have a Roman Catholic past or background or you know Roman Catholics, Not every Roman Catholic is going to agree with everything I'm going to read to you up here. I'm going to give you the official Roman Catholic perspective, doctrine on Mass, and you are going to run into Roman Catholics who have no idea that this is what their church believes. You're going to run into Roman Catholics who have no idea that this is the official position of the church, and you're going to run into Roman Catholics who don't believe this. And they would say to you, I don't believe that. Whether they believe it or not is irrelevant. The question is, what does the official position of the Roman Catholic Church Teach. And we get that from the Council of Trent, which took place between 1545 and 1563, just about 30 years after the Reformation began. It was a response to the doctrines of the Reformations and the Reformers. And as I read to you some of the statements from the Council of Trent, which is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to, if you're familiar with what the Protestants were protesting against, then you're going to realize very quickly that Trent was a response to the Roman Catholic, sorry, the, the Protestant Reformation. They were basically reaffirming, in spite of what the Protestants believed, this is what we affirm in what we believe. And one last quick uh, disclaimer. This is not in any way intended to be Catholic bashing. 
I don't bash Catholics. I wouldn't even pick this up if it weren't addressed or needful with John chapter 6. I don't choose topics to preach on week to week. We simply go through the text and we deal with what's there. I was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church. My grandmother and my uh, grandfather were Roman Catholics, and they practiced as Catholics. And I went to his funeral. It was at a Catholic church, and I had to read Scripture to Catholic church. Kind of a funny story, actually. The priest had given me uh, two passages to read, one out of the book of whatever. I don't know what it was, an apocryphal book, and one out of the Gospel of John. I didn't want to offend my Roman Catholic family because they're all there at the Catholic wedding. Or, sorry, funeral. <laughs> Those two things confused. <clears throat> They were all there at the Catholic funeral, and so they said, would you get up and, and read these passages? And I said, sure. So I got up there as part of the service, and I read from the book of Maccabees, whatever it was, and when I got down to the very end, I said, now, and then I was reading out of, I think, First Thessalonians or First Corinthians, I said, now, this is what the Word of God says. And I quoted that. And then I got all done, and I said, and the Word of God says, and I quoted John 3.16, which the priest had not given me to read. And when I got all done with that, he was, well, he wasn't happy that I had done that. And I distinguished between Roman Catholic scriptures and what we as Protestants recognize as the canon of scripture. All right. The question, the issue between Roman Catholics and Protestants that divides us is the issue, is, is this question right here. In what sense is Christ present right here? In what sense is Christ present in these elements right here? Roman Catholics have a view of the presence of Christ that he is in a certain way present right here in the act of communion and in and with these elements. Now, for those of you who come from some Reformed backgrounds, I understand that even amongst Protestants, we have certain distinctives as to what we think is present right here. But there is a major divide between Protestants and Roman Catholics about what is present in the Lord's hosts, or in the elements, whether it is the Lord's flesh or not. So we're going to deal with that issue. What is present in the Lord's table. In what sense is Christ here? That is the main issue that makes mass, mass, and the Protestant observance of communion, communion. In what sense is Christ present in those elements? The Roman Catholic position is known as transubstantiation. A big word. Don't be scared by it. Transubstantiation. Let me describe to you, according to Millard Erickson, who's not a Roman Catholic, by the way, I'm going to quote from some Roman Catholic sources in just a second. According to Millard Erickson in his book, Christian Theology, transubstantiation, quote, is the doctrine that as the administering priest consecrates the elements, an actual metaphysical change takes place. The substance of the bread and wine, what they actually are, is changed into Christ's flesh and blood, respectively. Note that what is changed is the substance, not the accidents. Thus, the bread retains the shape, texture, and taste of bread. A chemical analysis would tell us that it is still bread, but what it essentially is has been changed. The whole of Christ is fully present with each of the particles of the host. All who participate in the Lord's Supper or the Holy Eucharist, as it is termed, literally take the physical body and blood of Christ into themselves. End quote. That's Erickson's description of transubstantiation. Let me break that down for you a little bit. It kind of comes out of something that was actually pre-Christ, pre, uh, B.C. It was Aristotle's distinction between what is physical and what is metaphysical. And Aristotle distinguished between what, was, what something was in its substance and what something was in its accidents. Let me describe it to you real quick. According to Roman Catholic theology, at a certain point in the Mass, a transformation takes place where the bread becomes no longer bread, but actually, physically, the flesh of Jesus Christ. 
And the wine or juice becomes no longer wine and juice, but actually, physically, the blood of Jesus Christ. Now you can pick it up and do a chemical analysis of it, and it will smell like bread, and taste like bread, and feel like bread, and look like bread, and sound like bread. And you and I as Protestants would say, if it walks like a duck, and talks like a duck, and sounds like a duck, it's a duck. But according to Roman Catholic theology, they would say no, not necessarily. Because what something is, is different than how something appears. And it's sort of a metaphysical distinction that comes from Aristotle. Aristotle distinguished between the substance of something and the accidents of something. And by accidents, we mean the, the part of the, the, uh, the appearance of something. What something is in reality and what it appears to be. And that distinguish, that distinction between accidents and substances, the substance of something, was sort of brought into Roman Catholic theology. It was adopted by Thomas Aquinas and made its way into Roman Catholic theology so that a Catholic can honestly say, it really is flesh. Tastes like bread, smells like bread, feels like bread, but it is actually the flesh of Christ. At some point during the communion service, this goes from bread into the literal flesh of Jesus. Same thing with the blood. Okay. Now the Council of Trent on Substantiation, Session 13, Chapter 4, says, quote, and because that Christ, our Redeemer, declared that which He offered under the species of bread to be truly His own body, therefore has it ever been a firm belief in the church of God and this holy synod doth now declare it anew that by the consecration of the bread and of the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of His blood which conversion is, by the Holy Catholic Church, suitably and properly called transubstantiation. End quote. So here's what they're saying. Not, not that this becomes a symbol of those things. They're not saying that these elements contain the body and blood. But there is an actual substantial change so that the one thing is changed entirely in its substance over to another thing, even though it retains the appearance and all of the attributes of the previous thing. Now, to the Western mind, that sounds ludicrous, does it not? To the Eastern mind, to the metaphysical mind, to Thomas Aquinas, to Aristotle, to the Greeks, it's not all that mysterious at all. It's perfectly natural and understandable. We don't think like that, but they did. And that made its way into Roman Catholic theology. Further, the Council of Trent says in Session 13, Chapter 5, Wherefore, now listen to this, Wherefore, there is no room left for doubt, that all the faithful of Christ may, according to the custom ever received in the Catholic Church, render in veneration the worship of Latria, which is due to the true God, to this most holy sacrament. End quote. Now, in other words, since this is the body of Christ, and since it is His blood, Roman Catholics believe that it's not just empty flesh and empty blood, but that the full divinity of Christ, His full deity, His full nature, his full essence, his real flesh is present here. So that this is just as much, even though it doesn't look or taste or sound like it or smell like it, it's just as much the flesh of Christ as his literal flesh and blood that walked among us 2,000 years ago. And because his full divinity is contained in these elements, and because he, the Son of God, is really substantially, literally, physically here, you can worship these elements and give to the elements the worship of Latria, which veneration should only be given to God because this is God's flesh. Does everybody follow that? So at least they're consistent. If they're going to believe that this is the flesh of God, then they would worship this piece of flesh just like they would worship Jesus in His flesh. 
in our presence. If he were standing here in the flesh, they would worship him. If he is on the table in the flesh, they would worship him there as well. So further, Rome says, For there, for not therefore is it the less to be adored on this account that it was instituted by Christ the Lord in order to be received. For we believe the same God to be present therein, of whom the Eternal Father, when introducing Him into the world, says, And let all the angels of God adore Him, whom the Magi, falling down, adored, who in fine, as the Scriptures testifies, was adored by the apostles in Galilee. End quote. So that worship which the Magi gave, which the Father said should be given to His Son, and which the apostles gave to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, is to be given that same veneration, that same worship of Latria, is to be given to the elements. Now that's consistent theology. I think it is wrong theology, but it is consistent theology. If this is the bread and blood of Christ that contains His full divinity and His soul, then it should be worshipped just as if He were standing in front of us here today. It's consistent theology. I think it's wrong. I think it's idolatry. Trent, Session 13, Canon 1 says, quote, If anyone denieth, denies, Alright, denieth is the old King James. If anyone denieth or denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but saith that he is only therein as in a sign or in a figure or virtue, let him be anathema, end quote. That means let him be damned. So if you deny that Jesus Christ is physically present here and you believe it's just a sign or just a token or just He is here by virtue or in a spiritual sense, let you be damned. So in other words, if you believe like I believe, then you are to be damned. Further in Canon 8 of the same Council of Trent, if anyone saith that Christ given in the Eucharist is eaten spiritually only and not also sacramentally and really, let him be anathema. So if you say that we're spiritually eating of that flesh, you are to be damned. Now what if you decide that you, what if you deny that this should be worshipped? How does Rome feel about that? Canon 6, quote, If anyone saith that in the holy sacrament of the Eucharist, Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is not to be adored with the worship, even external of Latria, and is consequently neither to be venerated with a special festive solemnity, nor to be uh, solemnly borne about in processions according to the laudable and universal right and custom of the Holy Church, or is not to be proposed publicly to the people to be adored, and that the adorers thereof are idolaters, let him be anathema. End quote. In other words, if you deny that this should be worshipped, or if you call those who worship this idolaters, because it is idolatry, then you are to be damned. Let you be anathema. That is a curse. Further, Rome believes, Canon 5, if anyone saith either that the principal fruit of the Most Holy Eucharist is the remission of sins or that other effects do not there result therefrom, let him be anathema. End quote. Now, did you catch that one? If anyone denies that this forgives sin, let him be anathema. Okay, so this is kind of the two key elements of the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Mass. Number one, there is a literal transubstantiation, a transformation from bread into flesh, actual flesh, literal flesh, and that by eating it, you are ingesting the literal flesh of Christ. Though it tastes like bread, it, it is the literal flesh of Christ. Though you can't tell it outwardly. If you deny that, you're to be anathema. If you deny that this should be worshipped, you are anathema. And if you deny that the partaking of communion has benefits, including the forgiveness of sins, you are to be anathema. 
Because this is the Roman Catholic idea of the Mass. That in the observance of the Mass, there is an actual sacrifice that takes place. That Christ is offered on the altar, on that table, again and again and again and again and again in the very same way that He was crucified on the cross of Calvary. That actually before us there is the sacrifice by Jesus of His literal flesh and of His literal blood and that by partaking in that sacrifice, that sacrifice itself has the power to remit our sins and our guilt and to clean our conscience. And that it is in fact necessary in order to cleanse you from certain venial sins. Quoting the Council of Trent, Session 22, Chapter 2. This goes on for days, but listen to this. Just try and pay attention. Stay with me. And for as much as in the divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass. Do you hear that? This is called a sacrifice. Inasmuch in the divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, that same Christ is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner, who once offered Himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. The Holy Synod teaches that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory, and that by means thereof this is effected, that we obtain mercy and find grace in seasonable aid if we draw nigh unto God, contrite and penitent with a sincere heart and upright faith with fear and reverence. For the Lord, appeased by the oblation thereof, and granting the grace and gift of penitence, forgives even heinous crimes and sins, for the victim is one and the same, the same now offering by the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, the manner alone of offering being different, the fruits indeed of which oblation of that bloody one to wit are received most plentifully through this unbloody one, so far is this from derogating in any way from the former oblation. I'm going to explain all this in just a second. Wherefore, not only for the sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those who are departed in Christ and who are not as yet fully purified, is it rightly offered, agreeable to the tradition of the apostles. End quote. Here's what it is. Here's what they're saying. Christ is here physically present. He is being offered as an oblation, a sacrifice. It is a propitiatory sacrifice, meaning it has the power and ability to satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of sin. It satisfies His justice because this is being offered as a sacrifice for sin to atone for sins. And you can't deny that, they would say. Otherwise, you are to be damned. And not only does this offering uh, atone for and sacrifice for sins propitiate the wrath of God for sin, but it is necessary in order for the faithful to receive the necessary graces that they need, including the grace of penitence and repentance. And not only is it for the faithful, you and I, they would say, but it is also for those who are in Christ, who have died, who have gone on, who are not yet pure. In other words, in the Mass, offerings and sacrifice, a sacrifice of Christ, an unbloody sacrifice of the same nature as that which was rendered on the cross, is made for people who have already died, who are not yet purified. That's the Council of Trent. You understand that? That's the official Roman Catholic position. That by this, you're doing something for those who have already died in order to further their purification because they are not yet perfect. So you're doing something to make them perfect. And so Rome uses words like oblation and immolation and unbloody sacrifice. Basically the only difference between this and the cross is the location and the looks of it and who is offering it. Christ offered it on the cross. The priests now offer it on the altar. Christ was in Jerusalem. We do this all over the world. 
Christ offered a bloody sacrifice. This is an unbloody sacrifice. But both of those appease the wrath of God. Both of those are necessary for God to forgive your sins. Without this, your sins cannot be forgiven if Christ is not offered again and again and again and again. Now what if you deny this? What if you deny that communion is a sacrifice, a propitiatory one? Council of Trent, Session 22, Canon 3 says, quote, If anyone saith that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it profits him only who receives and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, pains, satisfactions, and other necessities, let him be anathema. In other words, if you deny everything I read in the big long quote, you are to be damned. Canon 4 says, If anyone saith that by the sacrifice of the Mass a blasphemy is cast upon the most holy sacrifice of Christ, consummated on the cross, or that it is thereby derogated from, let him be anathema. In other words, if you say that your view of the Mass detracts from your view of that one holy, perfect, sufficient, infinite sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross, if you you think that their view of the Mass takes away from that, then you are to be damned. So is everybody clear on what Roman Catholic Mass teaches? Basically, a few a couple key elements. There's a literal transformation that takes place. It is necessary for the forgiveness of sins for those alive and for those dead, and that you are literally taking the physical body and blood of Christ into you as you eat. Now, since they believe that, and it should be worshipped, by the way, a propitiatory sacrifice where the elements should be worshipped. Now, are there Roman Catholics out there that don't believe that? Of course there are. Are there Roman Catholic churches that don't teach that? Of course there are. Are there Roman Catholic priests who don't believe that? Probably. They're probably priests that have no idea, have never even read the Council of Trent and have no idea what I just read to you. But this was the official Roman Catholic position. They've never renounced it. They've never gone back from it. That is, in fact, the theology proper of the Roman Catholic Church today. Now, this would explain to you why it is that the cup of juice is held back from the laity during the Mass and Communion, right? You understand why that would be necessary? A couple of different reasons. You don't want to hand a cup full of the literal blood of Christ to somebody and risk that it might be spilt. I don't know if we've ever spilt communion juice here when we've done, done communion, but it's a, it's a risk we take passing that plate full of juice across everybody's lap, right? One of these days, somebody is going to walk out of here with a nice white shirt stained with grape juice because it could be spilt. So you run that very real risk. And what would happen if you were to spill the literal blood of Christ on the floor and it would be trampled underfoot? Can you imagine the act of blasphemy that that would be? So in their mind, you do not give the cup of juice to the people in the laity because that takes the risk that that precious literal blood could be spilt and thus defiled. And so they would say you can hand the bread to the laity, but you cannot hand the juice to the laity. And here's why the bread is sufficient. Because in, as I read earlier in one of those quotes, every particle of the bread contains the full divinity and the full flesh and the full soul of Jesus Christ. Every particle of it. And so you don't need to take both elements in order to benefit and have all the benefit of communion. You just need to take one of the hosts the flesh, and eat that because in doing so you are ingesting the full flesh of Jesus Christ, his full soul and his full divinity, and that is sufficient. And so then the laity can act on behalf of, or sorry, the priest can act on behalf of the laity in partaking of the cup. Now all of this rests, of course, upon a very literal interpretation of John chapter 6. Now we come back to our text. Now a Roman Catholic would read chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, if anyone eats of the bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I give is my flesh. Look at verse 54, or 53. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So the Roman Catholic would say, Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, did not say, this is a symbol of my body, this is a symbol of my blood. He didn't say, this is a token of my body, this is a token of my blood. He literally said, this is my body. And they would say, you cannot take that in any way but a literal sense, that if Jesus said, this is my body, then it must be his body. And we have to take it that way. We take it by faith. And we know that at a certain point, a transformation happens when it literally becomes his flesh and his blood. So we take it literally. What else do these verses mean if they're not to be taken in their literal, natural sense that this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ? How else would you understand it? That's what a Roman Catholic would say. Is there another way of taking John chapter 6? There is. Let me give to you seven reasons why I do not think that John chapter 6 has anything to do with the Roman Catholic view of Mass. Now you understand how why Roman Catholics would see John 6 as supporting their position. Because they see what Jesus is doing here is explaining the doctrine of the Mass, the reason for it and the necessity of it. Furthermore, they would see, and some have said, that Jesus is here actually performing a Mass for the disciples and this crowd and encouraging them to eat and thus live. And here's why I don't think that John 6 has anything at all to do with Roman Catholic Mass. Number one, because the context itself does not indicate that this in any way refers to literal eating and drinking. The context doesn't indicate that. And we've gone through this and we've taken our time all the way from the beginning of chapter 6, right? We saw the miracles, right? The crossing of the Dead Sea, we, or, uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee. We've gone through all of the issues in John chapter 6 and you haven't heard me mention nary a word about communion or the elements or bread or wine or anything until now. Why is that? Could it be because that's not what Jesus is talking about anywhere in John chapter 6? There's nothing in the context leading up to this that in any way indicates that the eating and drinking of which Jesus is speaking is a literal eating and drinking. The whole context is about belief. He is explaining the reasons and the ramifications of unbelief. He is giving reasons and the benefits of believing. And he is saying to his disciples and to this crowd, believe upon me. The whole context has been believing. We've seen that over and over again, right? Believe, believe, believe. John 6, verse 36. Jesus said to them, you've seen me and you do not believe. And he says in verse 37, if you come to me, you will have life. In verse 40, that life comes by beholding and believing in the Son. Verse 47, if you believe upon me, you will have eternal life. So the whole context has to do not with explaining the Roman Catholic idea of mass, but of believing. He is encouraging belief. That's the issue. Now I'm going to suggest later on that there is a connection between eating and drinking and believing. Believing fits the whole idea of the context. A second reason this does not refer to Roman Catholic view of mass is that communion at this point in Jesus' life had not even been instituted. Communion at this point had not even been instituted. That wouldn't happen for a whole other year until the following Passover. So to take something that happened a year later and sort of plug it back into John 6 and to say, okay, because it's we're going to take what happened earlier and plug that idea into John 6, which happened a year earlier, that's what you call an anachronism. Or anachronism? Anachronism. It's, it's one of those things. It's, it's a time sequence out of order is the idea. What would you say it was? Ask the teacher. Anachronism. That's what I thought. Should have went with my instinct. It's an anachronism, which is where you take something from a later period of time and insert it into an earlier period of time. If you're watching a Western and you see the guy, you hear a cell phone go off in the Western movie and the guy picks up his cell phone and talks on it in the Western, it's supposed to be taking place back in the 1800s. That's what you call an anachronism. It's something from the future which is inserted into a time period where it doesn't belong. That's what John 6 would be. It would be an anachronism if Jesus is here speaking of communion. It wasn't for a whole other year that he would sit down and say, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper, does not go back to John 6. 
He doesn't say Jesus with the crowd in the synagogue in Capernaum said this and quote John 6. Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 11 on the night that he was betrayed. That's when he instituted it. That's when he instituted it. So to say that this is describing communion when it had not even been introduced for a whole year is really distorting the text and putting something where it doesn't belong. Fourth, communion or mass would have made no sense to the original audience. That should be obvious to us. The disciples wouldn't have got the idea of mass or communion from this John chapter 6. The Jews certainly would not have understood the idea of mass or communion from John chapter 6. It's entirely foreign to the context. The original hearers and the readers would not have understood that. If you come up with an interpretation of a passage that nobody, nobody at the time who heard this or read this would have come up with, you have come up with a wrong interpretation of the passage. That's the general rule of thumb. Nobody in this context would have understood this to refer to mass or to communion. They would have had no idea what Jesus was describing because that wouldn't be introduced for a full year. Number five, communion is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Who is Jesus speaking to in John 6? Who is Jesus speaking to in John 6? Unbelievers, right? Verse 36, you've seen me and you do not believe. Nothing could be more clear from the context of John 6 that he is addressing a crowd of unbelievers, impenitent, hard-hearted, rebellious, unwilling to believe in him. They want him as king to get all the benefits, but they will not place their personal faith and trust in him. They will not come to him and take him as he offers himself. They are unbelievers. Communion is for believers. And yet we are to believe that Jesus is here offering mass to a group of impenitent unbelievers when communion is clearly for believers, not for unbelievers. That doesn't fit the context. Number six, if this refers to the mass, then all that is necessary for eternal life is to partake of communion. Because what does he say in verse 51? I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So what is necessary for eternal life according to verse 51? You just eat of the bread and you're going to live forever. Right? Verse 53, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. All that is necessary according to that interpretation is that you eat the flesh and drink the blood, participate in communion, and you have eternal life. See, that view, the Roman Catholic view, proves far too much because Roman Catholics do not even believe that. They do not believe that all that is necessary is that you partake of this and you will live forever and be raised up on the last day. But if John 6 is referring to communion, then all that's necessary for eternal life is that you eat this flesh and drink this blood. And yet in the context of John 6, what has Jesus over and over and over again said it is that brings eternal life and raises one up on the last day? Belief. Belief. Not eating and drinking. Belief. And number seven, what is presented in John 6 is the language of sacrifice, not the language of communion. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my sarks, is the Greek word, sarks. It means flesh, flesh and flesh and blood. It's a raw word. It's a sort of a harsh word. It's a, a straightforward, very clear word. that just simply, it's, a, it's a language of sacrifice. It's flesh, it's blood. This is going to be offered. This is going to be offered on a cross. Um, the language that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul says, this is my body, it's soma, not sarx, it's soma, it's a different word. Soma is nowhere used in John 6, which means you can basically draw a line between the two things. You can tell that they're not talking about the same thing. The life that I will give, the, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my sarx, my flesh. Paul says, and it is my soma, his body that was given. It's a different language. One is describing a sacrifice. One is describing the commemoration of that sacrifice. And the authors are careful to use very different language. That's not the most powerful argument, but it is an argument. Further, I would say that Jesus in verse 51 speaks of the offering of his body as something that was future. This is number eight, or actually it was number seven. I missed one somewhere. 
the language that Jesus used speaks of a one-time event that was yet future. He doesn't say, I am giving or I, uh, I have given or I continue to give my life, my flesh, for the life of the world. He's speaking in the language of a one-time future sacrifice. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That one-time event is the crucifixion. Rome has to say that he continues to give, continues to offer over and over and over and over and over every time Mass is done. He continues to offer his flesh. But Jesus speaks of the offering of his flesh as a one-time event, just like the author to Hebrews. Remember what we read in the Scripture reading? He has offered for one time, once for all, one sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's done. It's enough. Nothing else is needed to forgive sins. Nothing else. And to say that that sacrifice is needed, His sacrifice on the cross, plus anything, is to denigrate that sacrifice on the cross. And the author of Hebrews is clear. He has made one sacrifice infinitely sufficient to forgive the sin of every person in the world if they would repent. It is infinitely sufficient and infinitely powerful. There is no lack in that sacrifice whatsoever. And he has offered that one time and sat down. He is done. And the author of Hebrews says it's not like the priests who go in day after day after day, year after year, offering sacrifices continually. Jesus is different. He is a better high priest. He offered it one time. That's enough. Because of who he is and what he did, it alone was sufficient to appease the wrath of God. Now, is there any connection at all between the Roman Catholic, or sorry, between John 6 and communion? Is there any connection at all between John 6 and communion? There is one small connection, and it is this. Both John 6 and communion point to the same event. John 6 does not point to communion. John 6 points to that sacrifice on the cross, whereby he would pay the full sin debt for all who would believe. Communion points to that one sacrifice on the cross and reminds us continually of what he did, which paid the sin debt for all who will believe. So there is a connection between the two, and it's this. They both point to the same event. They both speak of the same thing, though in different manners. But John 6 does not point at all to communion. So now you say, our time is up, and you've talked to me about what Roman Catholic Church believes about Mass, and you've told me why it is that John 6 has nothing at all to do with the Roman Catholic view of Mass. So now we are still left with the question of what does eating and drinking refer to? What does eating and drinking refer to? I'm just going to, since we're out of time, I'm just going to state it for you, and then I will leave it to next week to prove this or to show this from the text. I hinted at it last week. I told you to file it away in the back of your brain. Do you remember what that was? Whatever the eating refers to, the eating, whatever that refers to, brings eternal life. We've already covered that. Verse 51, you eat, you drink, you get eternal life. Whatever the eating refers to, whatever the drinking refers to, it brings eternal life and raises one up on the last day. Now, expanding it to the entire context, going all the way back to verse 37, what is it that raises one up to eternal life and gives one eternal life and raises one up on the last day? It is believing. It is believing. Listen, believe, you have life, you'll be raised up. Eat and drink, you will have life, and you will be raised up. Those are the promises. Now, if the consequences of these two actions, believing and eating and drinking, are the same, then what can we say about the sources, the actions themselves? They are the same. Friends, this is exactly what, as Protestants, I would say, that eating and drinking refers to. It is believing. 
It is a synonym for believing. It is an analogy of believing. It is an illustration of believing. It makes perfect sense with the context. Here you have people who had wanted to make him king. They believed a lot of things about Jesus, but they did not have the right type of belief. And Jesus is getting at them about what type of belief it is that they need to have. It's not an intellectual assent. We have seen this all the way through the Gospel of John. There is a belief that damns people. And there is a belief that saves people. And he is distinguishing between the type of belief that they have, which was damning them, and the type of belief that they needed to have, which would save them. What type of a belief is it that they needed to have that would save them? It is the type of belief that takes Christ as he is, a bloody sacrifice, and brings him to itself and says, this is mine. It is me. I am it. I align myself with this. I believe in this. I trust this. I take it into myself. I take it as my own and embrace it as my own. That is the nature of the type of belief that Jesus is speaking of. That is what eating and drinking is a perfect analogy of. And you'll see next week why. It is a beautiful metaphor. It is a perfect metaphor. It it basically draws the line right down the sand and says to them, you're over here and you're being damned with the belief that you have. You need to be over here and eat and drink my blood and my flesh and take me as I am and you will have life. He is distinguishing between the types of belief, the one that they had and the one that they needed to have. But we'll tackle that next week. Eating and drinking is believing. Believe and you will live. Believe and you will be raised up. Eat and drink and you will live. Eat and drink and you will be raised up. If the consequences are the same, then the actions themselves are the same as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that even though we have rushed through these things, that uh, you have made them clear in your word and you have made them clear in our hearts and our minds. And I do pray that they would be clear and that all that is unclear would be forgotten quickly and that you would be pleased to steal our hearts and minds in affection to you and in love for you, and in commitment to your truth and to your word. We do know many people who are Roman Catholics and many who have come from that background and many in our lives who still hold to those doctrines. We pray, O God, that you would, by your grace, deliver them from them and help them to see that the sacrifice on the cross at Calvary was sufficient to pay all of their sin debt, that they can have their sins forgiven, their consciences cleansed, and have eternal life based not upon what is done every week at the table, but based upon what Christ did, that one sacrifice for all forever sufficient and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. We thank you, O God, for your precious truth and precious grace to us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.